a lot of us say that we want more meaning in our lives, to be part of something greater than ourselves, to feel more connected to other people in the universe. This begins with becoming more connected with who we are and more self-aware of what's unconsciously motivating us. Welcome to Stoic Wellbeing. I'm your host, Sarah Megatel, an American in England who uses stoicism and other techniques to help my coaching clients become more present, productive, and open-hearted. I am here to help you too. Visit stoicwellbeing.com to learn more. In this episode, I am back with my friend Kai Whiting, co-author of the book, Being Better, Stoicism for a World Worth Living In. Kai is a researcher and lecturer in sustainability and stoicism. What a cool combination. And if you're into ancient ruins, you are going to love the beginning of our conversation because Kai is talking about the research that he conducted in Pompeii. And then we spend a lot of time talking about what it means to be a global citizen or a citizen of the world. Kai has lived all over the world. So have I. Should we adapt to local customs or stick to what we know? Should we be traveling more, traveling less? There aren't any rigid rules in Stoicism, which is a philosophy that Kai and I both try to follow. Stoicism is more about living according to principles. Let's jump right into my conversation with Kai. Before we got on this call, I had spent some time like researching you and looking up some videos. And I heard you say that you have done research on how the ancient Romans lit their homes, which has sounded fascinating to me. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Wow, you did dig deep. I like that. Yeah, so I wanted to combine sort of like stoicism and environmental engineering in a strange way. So we're looking at like history doesn't always have to be about the kings and queens, Sarah. It can be about how the the common person, so to speak, lived. And I find that much more interesting. Like how did the average, quote unquote, average person live rather than the wealthy? Because we hear a lot about what the wealthy did and their, you know, what they like to look, you know, see and do and the kind of plays they might watch. But we don't really hear about the poor person or the you know the small industrial classes what were they doing so I really wanted to think about how a a Roman Stoic would see the world like literally how would they have seen the world and because I think it helped me understand the philosophy because sometimes we kind of we we know that Seneca wrote something or we know that Epictetus wrote something but we take it and we just apply it to our lives and in our head they're more or less applying it in the same way and I was like, well, yeah, of course we're human, so there is an aspect of truth in that. But really, how did they see the world? So thankfully for us, and not so thankfully for them, there was the volcanic eruption of Vesuvius, which left Pompeii and Herculaneum, two Roman cities, quite empty of people, but full of stuff. So we could actually calculate how many lights the average home had, because they just left the lamps there. I mean, they had taken some, so we could say, like, you know, certainly some lamps had been taken. But most of what they had was just just there, like literally frozen or I guess melted in this case in time. And we just thought like, team and I, like, what does it look like? Are they as poor as we think they are? And the answer was actually not in Pompeii and Herculaneum because it was a port. And when you have a port or you had a port, you had wealth. So it was really interesting to see because I assumed that people would just have really old lamps, like really old oil lamps. But we found out that when the oil expands, uh, the oil heat expands the lamp and because the lamp's made of like ceramics it actually gets uh, wh- yeah, thinner and thinner because it stretches and then the handle breaks off so a la- an oil lamp would only last maximum for a year so then I started to think about like landfill they had a massive landfill problem because of all the ceramics like they didn't really know what to do with them it wasn't just the lamps it was how they they transported these massive uh, amounts of oil from one part of the Roman Empire to the other or like fish sauce because I always thought that 
Romans ate locally and would eat whatever was local to them, but they didn't. Uh, Their economics doesn't function the way that it does now for us, so it's a completely different concept. But they basically bought what they wanted from different uh, regions, even though they could have got the similar fish sauce just down the road. They just didn't do it. So it's really interesting that they had this like landfill issue with how they transported all these goods. And they chucked some under the Colosseum. Like the Colosseum, if you go under like the foundations, it's full of all this sort of pottery. But it still has like one of the most uh, ancient landfills you've, in, in the, as far as we're aware in the Western world. So I thought that was fascinating that their whole way of you know, lighting their, lighting their world and transporting their goods actually caused a waste problem. And we don't typically think of that in the contemporary sense. It's just like imagining all these people. And then we'd also like analysed the Georgian periods of 1820s London, because that's just before the height of the Industrial Revolution, so 1850s. So the mo- Paris and London being the two, I would say, most developed cities of the Western world at that point. We wanted to know to what extent a Georgian, the average Georgian had more light than the average Roman in Pompeii and Herculaneum, because that was a wealthy port city, but London was also pretty wealthy compared to other areas in the UK. And the answer was they actually had less, which I found incredibly surprising, Sarah. I would yeah. always assume yeah. that new is better, right? We have this thing, innovation is new, innovation is good, we should drive innovation. So it was quite interesting that there was innovation, but because of policy, same political policy, people had less. So for example, I don't know if you read this part, but in the Roman period, you couldn't build a fence that blocks your neighbour's sun. They really had a rule like, they valued sun and natural lights. So you couldn't you couldn't do that. But in the Georgian period, you had things like candle tax and you had window tax, which is why they boarded up the windows. So poor people couldn't afford to pay the tax. They'd board up the windows and they actually suffered from a lot of deficiencies due to lack of lighting. There was a lot of medical doctors at the time saying that this is a massive problem. And in fact, they, they got rid of the candle tax uh, from 1821. There's, a lot of records about how many candles they bought. And then they said by 1831 that this is criminal because it's actually taxing the poorest in society. So it's just really interesting that 2,000 years before, a person would have access to more light. The other thing that we found is that there was like a trade-off. So whilst the Romans used a lot of fuel, they didn't use a lot of um, materials in terms of their infrastructure, whereas the Georgians were much more efficient with their fuel, but not so efficient with their infrastructure. So it was like... We had to do an analysis not just of what they used, but how often they used it. So we're thinking about like the average working day in the Georgian period. We took things like the meals because they're big users and churches, again, big users of lighting. So it was a really fascinating experiment, I would say. It took a year just to get the data. And also, I don't know if you were aware, Sarah, but the units are different. So we don't have standardized units in that period of time. There's, That's there's true. Not, it's really common. I think it's 1835 we start to get standardized measures. Like, so one, you know, they would say like one container of coal, right? But one container of coal in Newcastle would be different to Sunderland, which is what, like, I don't know, eight to 12 miles. So it's like, well, what does that mean? And the idea as well, like bricks, people think that bricks are the same, but bricks in that period were different. So like you think, like, I was imagining a different type of fire brick and it was quite complicated to get over. Like, okay, I can't do the analysis based on the brick today because it's not the same brick. So it was just really, um, really, really interesting to see like, okay, all the things I thought to be true, they're not. (laughs) Wow, that's such an interesting project. And I imagine you were in the field for this. So you got to go to Pompeii and... um, I did go to Pompeii, yeah. We had to because we just couldn't see it. You know, you wouldn't be able to understand. 
I mean, you could do it, but we really wanted to know what it, it looked like. I love Pompeii. I've spent a lot of time in Italy and I, I love imagining what life must have been like back then. But I don't, I don't think I ever thought about like the lighting. So that was an interesting insight. It's, it's yeah, something so basic because we, you know, we're just used to turning a light on. But you can imagine if you couldn't turn your light on today at night. Yeah. I mean, even if you could have your computer on, just imagine you could do that. You just couldn't have a light. You'd be like, what, what would our world look like? It's just a, a completely different experience. And I think like they say something like just one light bulb in, in certain places in Africa can be the difference between a woman being able to marry who she wants to and being able to work where she she wants to because she was oh. able to get that one hour extra of education. Oh, God, so. that's powerful. That's really powerful. Um, and they also say things like, I don't know if you know this, but if you don't have shoes, you typically earn less than $1 a day. The minute you get flip-flops, you can earn $1 a day because you can walk to further along. And things like if you can get a bicycle, you can earn up to $5 a day. And if you get, get an old banger, you can earn like uh, $10 a day. So it's actually a real mm-hmm. analysis. And, and lighting is one of them, like literally, and it is women actually, it's not necessarily men. Because I say, the, whenever somebody says, what's the answer, like, educate women, it's always yeah. the answer, always, 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 always. And like one hour extra of the solar lighting for women means her kids are educated. Because if the man, He's educated. It doesn't necessarily mean it's terrible. Whenever it doesn't mean that the kids aren't, mm-hmm. and even in like the Islamic world, women are predominantly educating the children. So if she's more educated, she's more literate. The children are more literate, and so you get that accumulation of, of wealth, and they can yeah. literally get themselves out of poverty. So it's like, yeah, we don't need to do all these handouts. What we need to do is like hand up. <laughs> it's like we, we can yeah. throw money at someone. Like, no, how do we help her up? Like micro lending, exactly. right? Kiva, I used to donate to them quite a bit. Oh, cool. So my money is still on a roll there, I yeah, think. Cool. But yeah, I should revisit that site. It's been a while since I've been on there. So what was your biggest takeaways from what you learned in your research? That's a really good question. And no one's ever, can you believe that no one's ever asked me that? Never take, you know, never assume that somebody thinks the same as you because you're not in their context, which is why stoicism is very context driven. I don't know if you've seen this online, but a lot of people will say, is it stoic to do this? Is it stoic to say this? Is it stoic to act in this way? And the answer in stoicism is always, it depends. So, for example, you might say, I don't know if you uh, uh, remember in chapter one, we talk about, should we drink cow's milk, right? And in stoicism, the answer is not yes, nor no. So people want to know, is it yes or no answer? And the answer is, it's not. It depends. So if I know that cows are being abused, perhaps I shouldn't drink cow's milk, right? At the same time, if I'm at my, you know, my grandma's house, for example, and she would get offended if I didn't drink the tea that she'd just made, and it would upset her, perhaps because I'm in a house and polite to drink that tea, right? There's a lot of things you have to think about. Who am I? Where am I? Can I educate my grandma on this subject? Is it worth doing so? Or is it, if I'm going to say, like, well, actually, I, I disagree with, like cow's milk because the way it's produced will she see that as i disagree with her will that cause a rift in our family quite unnecessarily is there not a better way to teach my grandmother rather than by drinking the milk and then explaining it to her or alternatively take you know buying her say oat milk and letting her try it and then explaining to her that i like it so it's never a yes or no yes i'm glad that you brought this up and i'm glad you brought up this specific example because in your book which is called being better stoicism for a world worth living in which you co-authored you talk about principles 
and that we need to make stoicism work for us according to our principles rather than rigid rules. And I've heard you talk before about your grandmother and I don't know if it was like milk and tea or about eating meat, but you had the principle that you were... I mean, I don't know exactly what your motivations were, but you did accept the tea from your grandmother. But I also am vegetarian and have been for most of my life. And my I come from like a long line of cooks. My grandmother had a restaurant, amongst other things. She was like an amazing woman, was state representative. But food was like a huge part in our life. And at one point, I... I wouldn't eat meat anymore. Even as a kid, I didn't like it. But at a certain point, I made the decision not to. And it it was hard for my grandmother. And so when I heard you talking about it, I was like, oh, Kai made a different choice (laughs) than I did. But I don't think you love your grandmother any more than I do. And I don't think I made I'm not the better person because I chose to not eat it. But it really struck me that we were in like pretty much the same situation, but we had acted on different principles in in the time. And I think that's the beauty of stoicism, isn't it? I mean, it's not, for example, it was it was my mum who, she was basically really offended by the fact that I was not going to eat meat in her house, right? Mm-hmm. And that was a massive issue. And I was living in her house at the time, like temporarily, but I was there. And I just made the decision that I would only eat her, her roast beef on a Sunday. So it's not mm-hmm. like I ate at her house every day. But if she yeah. cooks roast beef, so it wasn't roast chicken and it wasn't roast lamb, but if she cooked roast beef, I would eat it, but I would only eat it at her, at her house. And then she basically floated on air because she was going around telling everybody, my son's vegetarian, but he would eat my Sunday mm-hmm. roast dinner. He loves it mm-hmm. so much. So she went around and told everybody that. And then when my dad was trying to give me other things, she's like, no, our son has told us that he only eats my beef. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a way of being like, I'm at your house. I have to respect you. Like, I'm not against you. And actually, she went out that next day and she bought loads of vegetarian stuff. Like, literally, the, 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 she came back with, like, bags and bags of, like, vegetarian food, which would never have happened if I hadn't been like, okay, I'll eat this one meal. Yeah, and my grandmother ended up creating more vegetarian dishes as well, even though I had been full stop, like, no, I'm not eating this anymore. But but I was kind about it. You know, I definitely made it known that it wasn't about her, but it was just about my ethics of eating. And I wasn't like shaming her or anything. Anyway, everyone came around in the end. I mean, it's interesting what you say, because that's what people forget in Stoicism. The answer, one of the key questions that we ask in Being Bear in Chapter 1 is, do I want to eat meat? And if the answer is no... And there's no, you know, you're not being unjust towards anybody by choosing not to eat it, for example, then that's a perfectly viable decision because you just said, I just prefer not to eat it. And that's perfectly reasonable, right? I mean, if if there's not going to hurt any, what we not in the stoic sense, but in the non so hurt anybody, quote unquote, if it's not going to cause you to act in a vicious way, then, you know, a cowardly way or a greedy way or an ignorant way, then there's, there's no reason why your decision isn't as valid as mine. I just came to a different decision because I said, well, what meat am I willing to eat? Yeah. Under what circumstances? And you, you, your answer was, well, in, in the US, the answer is none. If you were living in a Pacific island for a week or two, you might eat fish, right? Because you'd be saying, well, the locals cooked it for me and there's nothing else to eat here except fish and coconuts. Unless I'm going to eat coconuts all day. I'm going to have to eat the fish, right? So I think you'd make a different decision based on where you were. And that's why I think you and I both agree that it depends, 
right? Yeah. I agree that it depends. I probably would eat coconuts the whole time, but <laughs> that, that that's another story. But I mean, I think this is going along the lines of like principles and then the four roles that we have as human beings. So could you talk about what those are? Yeah, so this comes originally from Panaitius, and Panaitius comes up with this idea that we have four roles. The, the only one that's universal to everybody, and the fundamental role is that we're all human. And we're all capable within reason, you know, most of us are capable of the prototypical human, which means the typical human being, which you would expect to find on, you know, if you have a wide bell-shaped curve, the person who falls under that bell, most of us have the capacity to, for reason. Now, not all of us do. And that could be, I mean, there's an argument actually between Cleanthes and Chrysippus, like if you're drunk, do you have the capacity for reason, right? So there's even an argument in the Stoics, like how is it, is it even drunk people, are they capable of reason? But basically most prototypical, all prototypical human beings are capable of reason. And we, that reason is to know ourselves. So we are able to know what's true from ourselves, from our observations. So not just how we feel about something, but really what we observe and know what's true in the, in the world. But there's also key roles like, who am I? What's my job, right? So apart from the universal role that we're all human, a key role is what knowledge we have. And the knowledge we have is dictated to us to a certain degree to the choices that we made in terms of our job. So if you, Sarah, came across a dying person in the street and you happen to be a doctor, you have the moral obligation to do the best you can to save that person's life. But I also, as a non-medical doctor who also comes across the same person in the street maybe moments earlier, I also have the moral obligation to do all that I can to save the person's life. But in practical terms, what my saving of that life may look like is picking up a phone and dialing either your number or an ambulance, right, depending on the severity of, of, of where you are and the severity of the person's injuries. Because if I try to do what you do, I will actually kill the person. So it would be a lack of self-control and it'd be very unwise for me to try to do all the things that you will do to save that person's life because I'm not trained. So in your role, you might have to check, you know, the airways are open. You may check that they're not in shock. You put them on the side, keep them warm. But you may also, depending again on what you have on you at the time, you may also do something a little bit more intricate. Because if I did any of those things, I might kill them. So in Stoicism, this is actually a really key point that, okay, we're both universally human. So we have the obligation to use our capacity for reason. And how that reason gets used in American phrase gets cashed out depends on exactly who we've chosen to become, right? And you, even if you say, well, I wouldn't, didn't really want to become a doctor because my parents asked me to, I just did what they asked, you still did what they asked. But one of the key things is also your preferences. So for example, you may be a doctor and you might say, but I've just come out of a 12 hour surgery and I am exhausted. And I know that I can't do this and I prefer not to do this because I'm too tired. So even though you're a doctor, if you've just come out of a 12 hour, let's say brain surgery on somebody, you may not be in the best state to actually attend that person and you may make another phone call. So again, just being a doctor doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do what you would have done if you were going on your way to work as opposed to your way back from work. I think that's a perfect example of how doing the right thing differs depending on who you are and what your circumstances are yeah exactly and so one of the officer roles that we have is like who you know who am i like am i for example when i spoke to your relationship to your grandma would be different to i have if i had a relationship with your grandma so she may offer me milk and you might feel comfortable to say to your grandma no i don't want to drink it but i might not feel comfortable saying the same thing to your grandma 
right? So there's yep. also the key thing of like, who am I in terms of like, which country am I in? Which which year am I in? What do I know? Because people often say to me things like, well, I know what it's like to be 21. And I say to them, you do, but you don't know what it's like to be 21 in 2021. Right. You only yeah. know what it's like to be 21 <laughs> in, I don't know, let's say 2010. So your view of what it is to be 21 isn't the same. Okay, you can say to a 21-year-old, you don't know what it's like to be, you know, 35, let's say. But you don't know what it's like to be 21 right now either. And I find that that is really unhelpful when you say to like people, well, I know what it's like to be there. Well, not really. And that's why we say yeah. things like it's not very stoic to say if I were in your shoes, because I can't if I'm in your shoes, my feet are a different size to yours. So it didn't, it's a completely irrelevant uh, statement, actually, to make because I will make different choices right. if I'm in your shoes. I would love to hear more from you about what you think it means to be a citizen of the world, because this is a very ancient concept. So the idea of global citizenship, Sarah, is to bring people under your wing, regardless of the, the, the imaginary border of, say, the US, Mexico, or, you know, an ocean stretch that separates us, to kind of say, yes, we are separated, and you are French, and I'm British, and of course, historically, we've had our issues, right, as, as two nations. But that shouldn't affect how I speak to you, or, or you know, talk to you and I think that is what to me means to be a global citizen to see beyond those boundaries but to also reflect that they, they, they are significant because I wouldn't want everybody to speak English for example stoicism isn't about having a universal language because we're a global citizen in that sense and it isn't even necessarily about having say the European Union it, it really is like well if the European Union is working towards the four virtues, then yes. And if it's not, we can we correct the European Union? Yes or no, and to what extent? So people often think that we mean a global government, and that's not the case. Like, this is why I was so curious about global citizenship, because people do say to me, like, oh, I keep forgetting you're American. And I'll say, oh, well, where do you think that I'm from? And they say, I don't know. I feel like you could be from anywhere. Like, you're just from everywhere. And I was like, yes, that's exactly how I feel. I feel like I'm from everywhere. I feel like a citizen of the world, I don't feel like I am tied to one particular place. I mean, do you feel it is everywhere? I mean, do you feel like you are part of an Islamic country, for example? Or when you say everywhere, do you feel like everywhere Western? Or do you, I don't know if I lived in China, for example, do you also feel that you're also Chinese? Because I would say I also feel like I'm everywhere Western-wise, but I don't feel that I am Chinese, having lived there. Uh, and I've lived in the Middle East. And uh, there are obviously differences there too, although I do feel yeah. closer to the Middle East than I did in China. I felt yeah. like, oh my gosh, I yeah. don't understand. Uh, do you feel literally like it could be anywhere or do you feel like anywhere within like the West? Well, that's culture? a great question. So thanks for pushing back. And I'm not sure I would say where I end up usually can feel like home pretty quickly. But like I've lived in England for 10 years, but I couldn't say that I feel... English, even though I love living here, but I don't feel American either. Like I truly feel connected to every place, at least every place that I've been. And I like the stoic idea. And it's something that I've always thought of just being universally connected. Like we're all connected on a universal level. We're all part of the same cosmos, if you will. It's about recognizing humanity. And for me, that's a really big part of it. And something that I've talked about on the show before is I feel like traveling is the greatest act of diplomacy because we see in the media, like the media in a lot of countries will portray like X country as being like totally bad and awful. And then people think of like, 
oh, everyone in this country is awful. And I think we should definitely not judge each other by each other's governments. And so part of the citizen of the world thing is, yeah, just feeling connected to other people and having conversations with people at like a very ground level. It's interesting you say that, I guess when you go back to America, what you mean is when you go back, you don't feel particularly American anymore. Is that, is that what you mean, just to clarify? Because you said you didn't feel very British, but you're already yeah. English, sorry. And you didn't feel particularly American. Is that when you go back, you feel like you know you belong, but not entirely? Well, I guess even when people ask me the question, like you had asked me, do I feel American? And I don't. So there goes all my chances of being president of the United States someday. <laughs> but yeah, I don't, I don't feel like I belong to one particular country. I mean, that's really interesting because my co-author, Leonidas, he, he is, I asked him, what's your number mm-hmm. one identity? And he said, I'm, you know, I'm of the cosmopolis first, but then I'm American. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like for him, it's very, very clear. And I say to him, you love your country more than I love mine, which is, is just hard because I love the Queen. I know I've been brainwashed. I know. I know I love the Queen for a brainwashed reason. And the Chinese thought it was hilarious. When I was living there, they're like, you've been brainwashed. You say that we're brainwashed. You're brainwashed. But I am not denying that I'm brainwashed. I'm particularly brainwashed. You're denying you're brainwashed. So we're having this argument about who is more brainwashed. Like, you love the Queen. Why? They were like, why? Like, literally screaming at me, why? I'm like, she's amazing. Why? Because she is. <laughs> and they were like, what has she done for you? She's like, I was like, she's my representative. Like, the Prime Minister does something bad. I always have the Queen. I'm like, and <laughs> they couldn't get it. And I was like, I'm not asking you to get it. I'm not asking you to accept it. I'm not asking you to agree, but don't speak negatively about the Queen. And then actually here in Lisbon, I had a conversation with a really good friend of mine. He started saying something bad about the Queen. I said, I'm sorry. If we're going to continue this conversation, we go outside. Yeah. We do not talk about the Queen in my house like that. And it was like really weird because I don't know the lady. I've met, I've, I've seen her in front of me. She came to my university years ago, so I can say that I've met her kind of. But I never spoke to her. But it was such a sort of very yeah. strong reaction, almost like he'd insulted my mother yeah, or something. Yeah. And I was like, no, like we take this outside, like we have a conversation, but we're not having it here. So I'm just wondering because I still feel like I've lived in. Colombia and China, Latvia, Costa Rica, the Middle East. Like, and I still feel very English. Like, I still need my tea. I still need my crumpets. But at the same time, I don't feel like I'm English in some ways because I, I think, for example, I said that we can be quite mm-hmm. xenophobic in the UK. I don't think we are particularly racist, but we are extremely xenophobic. And that, I really dislike that because I'm like, it's just a passport. Because I was saying, like, once you've got your passport, you're British. Like, that's the one thing I like about being being British, like once you once you've got that ever passport, you're British, and it doesn't really doesn't seem to matter. When in other countries, that's not that's just not the case. I love the fact that if you're born in America, you're considered an American, and it doesn't matter. And I I used to think that everywhere was like that. I didn't realize how unique that was. Pretty yeah. much, yeah, not entirely unique. I mean, Canada's the same, but it's, it's pretty not, unique. It's yeah, really so I, I love that. But like you mentioned, defending the Queen, like I, I'll defend the U.S. to other people who are like, there's no culture okay. in the U.S. Or like, you know, <laughs> I'll be like, have you ever heard of jazz? Have you ever heard of rock and roll? You're welcome. <laughs> Actually, you've got a really good point. I've never thought of it like that. I don't. I know. I don't. I don't say that you have no culture. Yeah. By the way, I've heard it. Obviously, in the UK, we love saying that to you. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's true. Like, there's a lot of culture. I mean, do you? How do you find that when British people say to you or English people say to you like? Oh, it's no uh, oh. Is it a case? Do you feel that it's you not usually just or? English people? I mean, you're traveling, and yeah. because the U.S. was the highest power for so long, 
people feel it's like almost celebrity status for a certain like in the way that people feel like they can talk to you. Somebody might walk up to a celebrity and be like, oh my gosh, you gained weight. Whereas you would probably not say that to a regular person. And I feel like that has been like historically how people talk about the U.S. They'll just like let it fly mm-hmm. like anything that's on their mind. True. And so, you know, it depends on what they say. But if they say something that I think is inaccurate, I will tell them. But yeah, I mean countries kind of become part of your family, right? So even though, like, I'll be the first to point out something, uh, a flaw in the U.S., I'll also point out what's, like, good about it as well. I mean, that's the very stoic thing to, to do, isn't it? To say, like, like I said, I personally don't think we're particularly racist having lived in... Because people in the U.K., we like to say we are, but you haven't lived in other countries. You don't, I speak three languages and I know, yeah. I know where, what gets said. I'm not going to name countries, but I know what gets said and I have been in company and I know what you can say in other languages and you just cannot say that in English. It just, you just can't, it doesn't matter. Like, but in other language, the other language I speak, you can say it, right? So, but I do think we are incredibly, incredibly xenophobic. So I try to distinguish that and people push back at me and go, well, you would say that because, quote unquote, you're white. I'm like, that's not why yeah. I say it. I say it because I speak different languages and I know. But I would be lying to you if I said it. we are really good at integrating uh, people from different nations. I mean, one of the issues about Brexit, that I, I mean, not in terms of the vote, but in terms of now what's happened is that we are now treating EU citizens in unfair ways. And there's no reason for that. But we're using it as we tend to do in the, the government, so not an individual, but the government tends to use any excuse to treat someone who's not British differently. But I also experienced that in the US. Like when you're at an airport in the US, you get treated very differently if you're an American citizen as to your non, or what they, you call us like aliens, right? It's <laughs> like the weirdest terminology, right? You're laughing Illegal because it's aliens. true, right? Yeah. When you think about well, that, I would say yeah, like, airports universally treat people badly especially foreigners and and i think it's really sad that that is kind of the doorway for people like visiting new countries because i've experienced negativity myself and like i can handle it but i think of people who like this is like their one trip a year or even of a lifetime and i'm like oh i'm makes me sad that your welcome was like why are you here like, we're going to send you back if you don't have it. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, calm down. Leave them alone. <laughs> I'm not thought of it like that, but you're absolutely right. We literally is literally the gateway to another country. And most of the time it's an aggressive yeah. gateway, isn't it? If you're not a national, I mean, if you're a national, it's like, hi, I don't know. In the, yeah. I was, I'm not American, but in the UK, it's hi, welcome yeah. back. And it's really nice. But I do know that that's not the case for, for non-British. Again, it's again, it's not linked to skin color or, or religion. It's linked to a, something as as bureaucratic as a piece of paper and I I find that really challenging and in in the US I found it the same like they thought I was I didn't get treated very well and I nearly missed my flight because of it so I'm like yeah this is I think what you said is actually I've never thought of it like that well you and you and I had talked about couch surfing and I once, so I, when I was becoming an Italian citizen, there was a time when I was waiting for that to go through. And so I still had to travel on my American passport. And I went to England during this time because I was going to fly to London and then eventually make my way up to Newcastle to visit a friend. And so I did couch surfing in London. So I'm at the airport. And previously I had been flying 
within the other European countries. And so nobody was asking questions when I got to the border. Like if I went to Spain, you would just like get in. But yeah, but the UK was different. And so I got like the third degree. This woman was like, I think you're only here because you overstayed like your stay in Italy. And she was like, where are you staying? And I was trying to explain couch surfing to her. And she was like, she's like, what? You are going to go sleep at some random guy's house. And she was like, let me see your wallet. How much money do you have? Like, what's going on? Like going through everything. Yeah. And then I was like shaking because I was like, nobody even really knows where I am. (laughs) I didn't have a phone that worked in. This was like 10, 10 or more than 10 years ago. So I'm like all alone. She was like, where's your documentation of like when you're leaving? And I didn't have any of that. Like I was used to 24 hours. That's when you get access to that stuff. So anyway, she put a big stamp in my passport, like, you need to be out within a week. You're not eligible to work here. And also, like, I think you are being really dumb. <laughs> and, oh, and she also called the guy. She called the couch surfing guy. And he was kind of like, why is the airport calling me? This is crazy. Anyway, oh, and wow. then, but they were doing the same to the guy next to me who was there for a business trip. And they kept asking him the same question. And he's like, I don't know what you want me to say. Like... I'm here in business. So anyway, I got through, but it was really scary to me. I felt like I could disappear or something. Actually, you've got, a, yeah, I think that's a good point about being the citizen of the world is that, like I said before, like a bit of grace to somebody. Like, also, you tend to be quite tired, right? So I've, the only time that I've been worried about it was mm-hmm. when I was in Cuba. And I came, I was living in Colombia at the time, and I came on a Colombian flight. And they're like, why is this man... And the Pope was there that week, you see. So the security, and I have, I love taking pictures, or I used to when, when I was, because now I'm very busy and other things, but I like taking pictures of birds. And at the time I was taking a lot of pictures of birds. So I had a lens <laughs> like that. And he was like, what are you taking pictures of? I'm like, birds. He's like, birds? I'm like, yeah, birds. And he was like, not the Pope. I'm like, well, maybe the Pope. <laughs> Oops, I'm not supposed to say that. And they just confiscated an Italian journalist camera because he wanted to take pictures of the Pope and like don't mention the Pope <laughs> like, well probably not probably just and also why can't you take pictures of the Pope really Pope. upsetting yeah <laughs> Good. Well, isn't that what, that, what he's there for like on some level but, so we got there and then obviously we were followed as well so they followed us at the airport it was just very sort of stressful but when I actually sat and saw the Pope because I decided I might as well I was going to keep doing it which was not my original <laughs> intention I actually bought, had bought a Cuban flag and I found Americans and I gave the Americans the Cuban flag and the Cubans the American flag and we stood there because at the time it was quite a tense yeah. moment it was just really nice to have Americans hold the Cuban flag and Cubans yeah. hold the American flag and have that you know maybe our governments don't talk but we can we can talk between us exactly really Kai travel is the best form of diplomacy Perfect example of that. Yeah. Absolutely. And once you got through the gateway, you were able to like be with humans. <laughs> yeah. I think you're absolutely. So what, I'll just ask you one last question to finish off though. What would, what would you, if you could change anything about airports, what would you do? What would you do exactly with them? Using a stoic like principled approach, how would you change them? Obviously you have to still have security, right? Oh, using, I mean, st- be sensible. I'm using not saying stoic principles. Well, I, cause I, my yeah. first reaction when you were going to say that is to get rid of the security theater, which I think is really not doing anything. I don't think it's making people feel better and it's really not making us more secure from like the research that I've read. So like, let's be logical. I guess let's use some stoic logic. Like, do we really need to take off our shoes? Do I really have to throw out this bottle of water? 
that I just bought five minutes ago. Like, use reason. Let's bring in some reason and rationale and make it a more pleasant experience for everyone and obviously still be on the lookout and like be safe, but not treat everyone as if they are the enemy. When you have this, like you love traveling and I have loved traveling in the past, but I'm also aware of the climate issue. So I've actually like started to ask myself, like, at what point is it reasonable to travel? At what point, like, do I really need to see the Great Barrier Reef, for example? Is that something that's fundamentally important? If in doing so, I'm actually destroying, literally, the, the Great Barrier Reef. How do, you, how do you manage that, Sarah? Well, I guess I do kind of like a balance in my life. I think of my life as kind of a balance. So I am pretty much vegan. I don't have a car I've almost never had a car, only one year of my life. I don't have a dryer at home. I don't buy fast fashion. I hardly buy anything at all. <laughs> and so I feel like I have done a lot on, on mitigated. Yeah, mitigated is a good word. And so I feel like that's counterbalancing. I feel like if I'm traveling with hundreds of other people instead of me just traveling on my own, Plus, I mean, maybe I'm making excuses, but I feel like I'm living a pretty balanced life. And also I feel like the airlines are working to have a more carbon neutral experience. And I think they're going to get there and we might as well not put them out of business as they're trying to get there. I don't have an answer for you because I don't yeah. know. The, I don't have the answer for myself. Like it's I think like I just feel like. I could go less. Like I decided like not to go, I used to fly, well, I used to fly long time mm. for work, but with this year of COVID where we like haven't been able to go, it's like, okay, what do I need to prioritize? What's important? Yeah. And I think that's the key question is not to say you can't do this. Yeah. It's not about a checklist of bad and good, but there's a lot of people want, okay, so you're bad because you fly. Well, no, because you might say, I literally, I zero everything yeah. else. I literally zero everything else so that I can fly because I, I'm a citizen of the world and I really like talking to other people and I learn that way and I offset my carbon or I do other things. Like, and I think that's the key thing in socialism. Like, it's not about making excuses. It's about doing what one has to do. And evidently, if you don't have a car and you're vegan and you, you've made those decisions precisely because you want to, minimize your footprint it's not about being you know hitting yourself with a hard rope and you know, taking the skin off your back i think it is about about balance and i think that's what stoicism offers and there's no there's no right or yeah, wrong answer yeah. because you know if you just said to me like oh i go on a cruise every week and i fly every week we'd have a bit we'd be having a different conversation but you're like i just choose carefully which trips i want to go on and then make sure that i go on those ones and i don't go on like you know the weekend away you know, like I used to. I don't know yeah, it makes sense. And also it's like, what do you think is like important in life? Not just from a pleasure perspective and like travel is very pleasurable. Don't get me wrong. But then also like, I know you guys in the book were writing how you think the climate crisis is like the biggest crisis that there is. And it, it and it is a big crisis, but at the same time, there's a lot of economies that are quite dependent on tourism. And I like really like supporting local businesses and small businesses and helping them grow that way. And I do believe that peace, like even though this sounds like a radical, like a naive idea, I do think that world peace depends on us getting to know each other 
on an individual level, like you can read books about other places, but when you're actually having conversation, like I've literally, I mean, you said it to me yourself. You don't seem like an American, you know? Yeah. <laughs> People you, say that you, to yeah. me all the time. I, you don't seem like an American and they mean it as the highest compliment. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is why I get frustrated with like some of Greta Thunberg's message, not Greta Thunberg as an individual, but some of her message. I think, like, the idea of, like, everybody who's older is responsible and everybody's young is not responsible, I find that really unfair because there are a lot of kids who want to go to Disneyland. Being one of those kids when I was, like, I think I was really ill and I, I don't remember being particularly ill. Mum said to me, you know, you'll be really ill and I asked you, what, if you get better, what do you want? And I was like, I want to go to Disneyland. I don't remember the conversation. Yeah. Like, I must have been really ill. I don't know. And she said, I, I hoped you didn't say that. I hoped you'd said anything about that because it was so expensive at the time. Yeah. It still is now. And, and that's where we went. And I, I just feel like it's oversimplistic to say young people are completely innocent and old people are completely guilty because there are a lot of older people in this world and you'll know a lot of them that have never traveled. Right. And they'll go, yeah, but she does she mean when she says that the message means this. I'm like, well, if the message means that, then you need to clarify. It's too simplistic to say that somebody who flies is an evil person and that somebody who who doesn't is a wonderful person. Yeah. I, I don't like that message. I think the environmental message actually gets what you've just said really diluted because it puts people like, Well, hang on a minute, if I've done A, B, C, D and I fly because you know, I don't fly excessively, but I go, let's say you go two or three times a year and I, you know, make sure I support local businesses. And, you know, I, we were talking a little bit about how you support, you know, women's businesses. And you wouldn't be able to do that if you hadn't gone there and seen it with your own eyes. And I think that's the problem when you have a blanket message. And it's the power of stoicism. Real, real stoicism is not the blanket message. It's like, okay, what you just said, like, how can we balance that? How can, if we're going to fly, because that's something that we really want, how can we do so in a virtuous manner? Is there a virtuous manner? And I think, yeah, I mean, I don't think I'll be able to go to Australia just because I want to see the Great Barrier Reef, because I think it would defeat the object, because that's originally why I wanted to go. So I'm like, well, I'd actually be killing the Great Barrier Reef, so it doesn't make any sense. But let's say, like, you know, somebody in my family got married there, and I really want to be there for them because, because I'm related to them and they want me to be there. And then you go, well, yes then stay in Australia, do everything in Australia for those three weeks and never go back. So I think, does that make sense to you as well? Is that how you see yeah, it? Yeah, well, well, and it goes back to the decision you made to like eat your mother's Sunday roast. It depends on the circumstance and everything else that you have going on. And there's not like one rigid rule for everyone to follow in life. It's living according to your own principles. Yeah, the only rule is living according to nature or living according yeah. to this principle. That's it. That's, yeah. that's the wrong rule. Before I let you go, are there any tips that you want to leave people with to live a sustainably stoic life? Yeah, so I think the the number one tip is if you if you do buy the book, like think about it from your perspective. I'm only giving you a framework, and I think it's like it's a stoic framework based on my perspective, right, and Leo's perspective. But you ultimately have to live it. So don't use it as a step-by-step plan. The other thing I have is just a call to people, like, not necessarily buy the book, please ask your local library for a copy so that people who lost their job in the pandemic don't feel that they have to choose between essentials and the book. So if you do have a local library or you're a student or a lecturer, you can ask your university library or, again, your local library or somewhere else where they buying books please do so because 
I wouldn't want anybody to be in a position of wanting to read it and not being able to. Well, thanks so much, Kai. Where can we find out more about you? Um, so there's Kai Whiting on Twitter and there's stokekai.com. And I respond to all emails that are reasonably <laughs> sent to me. So if you've got any more questions, I'm happy to answer them. All right. Well, thanks so much, Kai. Thank you. Hey, let's continue the conversation. Head on over to my blog on Substack for more content on how to thrive through better communication, stoicism, and global exploration. That is right. Blogging is cool again over on the Substack platform. There you can chat with me in the comments, and I have plenty of bonuses for paid subscribers, or you can just read for free. So click the link in the episode notes to access the Substack Live Without Borders.